Hello and welcome to Confronting Christian Nationalism, a limited series that explores the rise of Christian nationalism in America and what churches and individuals can do to confront it. I'm your host, Daniel Dietrich. Do you support the United States becoming a Christian nationalist country? Yeah, I do. In November, do. we're going to take our state back. My God will make it so. The church is supposed to direct the government. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. Obey the laws of the government because God is obeying the government. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. In episode one, we listened to a number of audio clips directly from self-declared Christian nationalists. We're not interested in creating straw man arguments or mischaracterizing people, but hearing in their own words why they want America to be a, quote, Christian nation and what it means for them. In episode two, we'll hear from experts, authors, and theologians who will help articulate what Christian nationalism is, what it's not, and why it's a problem. This segment comes from a live presentation of the Vote Common Good Tour from October 2022 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Here's Doug Padgett, Executive Director of Vote Common Good, and our guide on this journey. So we're going to show you some things that experts have said about Christian nationalism as well. Um, you're going to meet someone named Catherine Stewart. She has written this book called The Power Worshippers. If you're into books, some people take their phones out right now and then they take this quick picture because uh, you want this book. Uh, Catherine, uh, uh, she's Jewish and her daughter went to a school, public school, and came home and said, Mom, why am I going to hell? She said, what's happening at school? You know, it's like her third grade daughter and found out that there was a thing at her school called the Good News Club. And that it was a place where some Christian teaching that would accuse Jewish kids of, of eternal sins um, uh, was being taught. And that caused her to write a book uh, called The Good News Club and got her into studying Christian nationalism. Now, her subtitle is The Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, partly because it's a broader topic. And she also said she's Jewish and she didn't want to be the one only, you know, saying she was only attacking Christi Christianity, but she's really talking about Christian nationalism. Uh, but this is Catherine. She's just excellent. These were interviews that we did at Vote Common Good with a number of experts uh, after the January 6th. It's part of the curriculum that's available online. So here's Catherine Stewart. Let's talk about what Christian nationalism is and what, let's talk about what it is not. The first thing to know is it's not Christianity or even a religion at all, properly speaking. It's a political ideology and its representatives insist that the foundation of legitimate government is bound up with a reactionary understanding of the Christian faith. It basically says that the United States is uh, founded on the Bible and that our country can only succeed uh, if it stays true to this foundation. Uh, it's also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population uh, by getting them to vote for the political candidates that the movement favors. And basically for um, creating a new elite, concentrating uh, power in the hands of a new leadership cadre of people who subscribe to illiberal ideologies. It's important to know that it's a leadership-driven movement. It's not uh, sort of bottom-up. It's not driven by the rank and file. It's a top-down movement. I want to say something else about what the movement is not. It is not just about evangelicals. I mean, it includes mm. some evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals, including uh, some white evangelicals and most evangelicals of color. 
Um, and it also includes representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion, um, ultra-conservative Catholics in particular have become a critical element and the movement actually even has support from individuals and groups that do not identify as Christian at all. I mean, what unites them is not a distinct theology, but a common political vision. So that's Catherine. Her book is full of great stuff like that. We really commend it to you if you're if, if you're interested in these conversations. But that's really important that she's saying, look, separate it out. You're going to hear this from a number of experts. It's not just Christians doing Christian stuff. There's an agenda behind Christian nationalism that's different than your average person's just clicking along in life and thinking, what am I going to do about my Christianity? Should I live my faith in the public sphere? That's not the conversation that's going on. You're also going to, I'm going to introduce you to someone named Amanda Tyler. You're going to just love Amanda. Amanda works with an organization called the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Now, depending on what your religious background has been or political background, you might hear Baptist Joint Committee and Religious Liberty and only think one sort of stream. These are, she's from the, the American Baptist tradition. And when they talk about religious liberty, it's a freedom of religion and from religion in the United States government. So she's uh, a lawyer. A lot of her group are lawyer, they're lawyers. They're in Washington, D.C. They do lawyerly work to represent people so that Christianity or any religion is not prevented from expression, but also isn't overextending itself into our political spaces. So that's the kind of work that they do. And because they're lawyers, they like statements. And we love working with, uh, with them. They started a project called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And they put together a statement that uh, like 25,000 people or so have signed on. You can go to their website. You can sign up for it. We work with them. We're really good partners. We're really proud of their work. I'd commend you to go there and sign up on their website and get on their mailing list and follow along in what they do. Um, and, and this is Amanda in the upper right. And, uh, and, and this is Amanda uh, sharing about, about her perspective, which I think is crucial to all of this. We should have a common understanding about what we're talking about as far as Christian nationalism goes. And I'm going to point to the statement that's available at ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. You know, the work that we did back in 2019 uh, was about providing an advocacy platform for people who were interested in learning more and for taking a public stand. And the, the centerpiece of the project is a statement. And in the statement itself, we define Christian nationalism as a political ideology that seeks to merge our identities as Americans and Christians. Um, so a, a few things here. You know, one, we are specifically talking in the American context. Uh, this is something that comes up. This is not uh, particular to the United States, but I, but in our work, we are, t we are really focusing on the American expression of Christian nationalism. And so we talk explicitly about American and Christian identities. Um, but we also want to distinguish that Christian nationalism is not Christianity. Christian nationalism is a political ideology. Christianity is sort of religion. That said, there, you can't totally divorce Christianity out of okay. it. It'd be, it'd be great just to say, oh, this has nothing to do with Christianity. Yeah. That would be yeah. really easy, right? That's not accurate. Um, and that's because Christian nationalism uses the narratives and the symbols, and in some cases, even the theology of Christianity um, to further this political ideology. But, but as we define Christian nationalism, it is not itself a religion. It is more about identity than religion um, in a lot of ways. And we get at this in one of our resources that we have available at Christians Against Christian Nationalism, a really handy one-pager um, 
that your guests last week, uh, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, helped us put together called What is Christian Nationalism? And we talk about how it's more identity than religion. Um, when we define Christian nationalism, I think it's also important to say what it's not. It's not patriotism. Patriotism mm. is a love of country, and we can love, we can show our love of country in a number of different ways. We can wave an American flag. We can protest in the streets. We can exercise our constitutional rights, right? These are all different ways to be patriotic. Nationalism is a love of country that also requires an allegiance to it above everything else, including our theological views. And so when our theological view, when our, when our patriotism starts to ask us to sacrifice our theological views, that's no longer patriotism. That's nationalism. And, uh, and particularly as we're talking about here, Christian nationalism. It really does seem like there's a lot of people who believe as a matter of fact that this was founded as a Christian nation with intent for a Christian community to express the desire and will of God in the world. Like I, I don't know. I hear that so often from people who I think would feel totally um, bothered by the fact that that would be Christian nationalism. They think it's just history. They think it's just a proper description you know, of how the world came together. Can you talk a little bit about how, how do you make sense out of the history that so many people have been taught? Maybe it was in Sunday school or school school or homeschool or somewhere along the line. They just picked up from, I don't know, the, the pilgrims forward that there were a bunch of religious freedom seekers that came to America to establish freedom from a, a oppressive government. And that was God's call. And the United States of America has a unique place and they just view the world through God's lens and they think God has given the people of Christian faith this land and we should be gracious to everyone. But, you know, it was kind of a Judeo-Christian place. Um, how do you even begin to unravel that when that doesn't feel like a choice people are making or a, an ideology they're picking? They feel like it's history. What, what advice yeah. do you have for people trying to, you know, make some, make some better sense out of all that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think for one, just engaging in conversation and not taking some of this history, and, and sometimes I'll put that in air quotes, right? History as fact, right? You can cherry pick any kind of history of the United States. You can take different anecdotes about certain founders or, or constitutional framers' own religious views. You can, you can construct a narrative as... Um, as some of these Christian nationalists like David Barton have done um, in the past. David Barton is someone who has spent decades writing this history of the United States as a, as a Christian nation. And, and a lot of this, as you said, gets into some of these curricula that uh, homeschools and others use uh, in order to teach this history. You can cherry pick that history. Um, and, you know, there's you you could spend your time kind of going anecdote for anecdote or quote yeah. for quote. I don't I don't often think that that's really a productive way to do it. And, and so instead and again, I'm I'm a lawyer, you know, and, and I lead this advocacy group about religious freedom for all. So I go to our founding documents and I go to the U.S. Constitution itself. And religion or religious is mentioned exactly once in the original U.S. Constitution from 1787. In Article 6, where there says there will be no religious test for public office. 
And so I say, if our if our founders really wanted to set up a Christian nation, this was a really ineffective way to do it, to say from the beginning that there would be no religious test sure. for public office. Um, and then you can go to the First Amendment, of course, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But if you are saying at the very first amendment to the U.S. Constitution that we are not going to establish a, re a religion, there shall be no law respecting an establishment of religion. Again, you're not setting up a Christian nation when it comes to the laws and the, the structure of our government itself. Um, it, it was never meant, however, for there to be a total um, a divorcement of religion from the public square, far from it. Um, but as far as the, our government itself, our government was set up as a secular government, not one that was meant to um, put for, to promote one particular religion over others or even religion over irreligion. It was set up as a secular government. Really helpful, isn't it? <clears throat> now, there's a long conversation where I think we talk for 30 minutes. So if you're interested in that longer conversation, you can find the whole thing there and follow along with, with Amanda and, and the work that she's, that she's doing. She referenced uh, two people named Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead. They're, they're quite experts in this field. They're both sociologists, uh, one in Indiana and one in Oklahoma. And they study this the way sociologists study this. And they've written a book called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. They never knew it was going to be as popular of a book as it turned out to be, because uh, it turned out to be quite popular. And I think if they, I wonder if they, I should ask them if they've wondered if they should have put what I think they should have as their subtitle, the threat of Christian nationalism in the United States, because it's not really clear from the title, is it for or against? But I guess they're sociologists and they're trying to just describe the situation rather than lay it out. Now, there's a couple of things that, ha that you need to know about how sociologists talk about things. So you might know this already, but I'll just do a refresher for those um, for whom it might, it might have slipped them. Um, Sociologists ask questions and they put people, they rank people on where they come down on a particular topic. So there's a series of questions that have been asked by a number of researchers over time in the United States. And there's a big database of how people answer these questions. Should the United States declare our country as a Christian nationalist country? Should there be religious monuments in public places? Should there be prayer in school? Should Questions like that, right? And it lands people with yes and no's and maybes and that kind of thing. And then all that data becomes a data source. Well, what uh, what, what Sam and Andrew have done is they've created a scale based on big data uh, answers as well as their own. And this is really crucial. They, they say it's really crucial, and I agree with them. They say you can sort of see a scale where you get a zero-point value on how you answer questions, maybe all the way up to a 24 on the, on the point value. And they make a, a really important distinction that Christianity is not a spot. Christianity is a spectrum. You're somewhere in the room, not only on one spot. It's not a game of twister, in other, in, in, in other words. What they suggest is that if you're over here on the blue and green side, you're the rejectors and resistors of Christian nationalism. I would put myself in the category of being a rejector. Like, I think it's a bad thing. I think we shouldn't have it. I think we should go out and travel around on buses and tell people about it, right? Give warnings and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Classic reject, uh, rejector behavior. Then there's a group of resistors. These are people who'd say like, yeah, Christianity's not something we should mandate through our government. We should stay out of it. We shouldn't have Christian nationalism. But you know, 
I'm not going to go out and do stuff about it. Then way over on the far side, there's the ambassadors, the people promoting Christian nationalism, the people we've seen on the screen. Do you think the United States should be a Christian nationalist country? 100%, right? Abraham Enriquez, 100% ambassador. If, if, if I'm comfortable as a rejecter, I think he's comfortable as an ambassador. I think you'd consider that to be fair. But then there's a group of people that are the accommodators. These are people who are kind of like the resistors. They're not going to go out and recruit people. They're not going to wave it as a flag, literally or metaphorically. They might not even say, I'm a Christian nationalist. But their views express Christian nationalism. Like, well, of course we're going to have prayer at the Friday night football game. And since, you know, America's history is as a Christian nation, the prayer should be Christian. Like we shouldn't have Muslim prayer at the football game or a Sikh prayer at the football game. We should have a Christian prayer because, you know, and if we're going to have chaplains in the Senate, which we do, or chaplains in the House, then they should be Christians and invite others in. But, you know, it's like that kind of thing. And, you know, the history of America, we started as a Christian country, so wouldn't it be good if we got back to our roots? This kind of thing, right? But they're not out pushing it. Here's the thing. About 20, 21 percent of people are in the ambassador category of the population of the United States. And somewhere around 30 to 36 percent of people are in the accommodator section, which means 50 to 56 percent of people in the United States are self-identified in spaces that would be considered Christian nationalists. It's not some little fringe. It's a lot. It's just us. It's around now, what I have found to be important here is many people don't use it as a phrase to identify themselves. My metaphor for this is, as somebody who lives in Minnesota, I'm a Midwesterner. But I rarely wake up in the morning and say, oh, to be a Midwesterner and to live in the Midwest, right? It only comes up if I travel the East Coast and somebody says, where are you from? And I say, oh, I'm from the Midwest. Okay, got it. You know, or I'm from tech, you know, like it just lands you on us in a space, but it's not a self-identified narrative. It's not a self-identification label, but it's where I live. It's true. That's how Christian nationalism sort of functions. A lot of people don't use it as a phrase but they live in it. So that's what they're doing with their studies. So now you're going to hear from them and what they've done in this book. And that's, of course, if you can, if you can read the screens, Andrew on the left and, and Samuel on the right. And uh, they talk about what they found in working with and talking to people who are in these categories and their research. But he's basically going to say that um, Christian nationalism functions in people's lives as more of a determiner of social views rather than, than being the, the byproduct of other views. So in other words, racist language, racist activity might come from Christian nationalism, not the other way around. So it's an interesting finding that they have, and they talk about that in a lot more here. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll dive in first and then let Sam finish it off. Um, so in our book, you know, we, we performed or you know, were able to get data on these large national surveys, and we asked um, respondents six different questions where they could strongly disagree to strongly agree with them. Um, things like, you know, the United States is part of God's plan, or the federal government should advocate Christian values or declare the U.S. a Christian nation. And so the degree to which people strongly agreed with those or strongly disagreed, we assigned them point values and were able to create a scale um, by adding all those different questions together. And we did that because it's really important to understand that Christian nationalism isn't a binary, you know, yes or no, but that Americans really are all along a spectrum where some embrace it really strongly. Um, some, you know, see, well, you know, Christianity being a part of, 
of what we do in the U.S. is important, and others kind of resist that, or the rejectors who we see on the very end of the scale say, you know, there should be no fusion of this type of Christianity, which again, which we define in our book, is, is really this idea of a white, conservative, um, natural-born citizen. That's, that's the Christian that they're talking about. Um, you know, American civil society shouldn't be fused to this type of Christianity. Um, and so when we're able to create that scale, we can now look at, well, how do these respondents view the world? And there were three basic things that we um, tried to do throughout the book and were our main takeaways. Is the first, that Christian nationalism matters. And so Sam, you know, he'll be able to share, um, even with his more recent data, that when we're looking at anti-democratic attitudes or we're looking at um, policing of African-Americans, if we're looking at immigration, if we're looking at refugees, if we're looking at religious minorities, we're looking at all these different um, important hot button issues. Christian nationalism consistently matters over and above whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you're an evangelical or a mainline Protestant or unaffiliated, whether you attend church a lot or you believe the Bible should be read literally. We account for all those things. Christian nationalism is still consistently one of the most important predictors. Mm. So that what that tells us is that this is a key lens through which Americans view their social worlds, whether they embrace it or reject it, it is doing work in how people are interacting with their world. Um, the, the second thing we find is that Christian nationalism is um, not only really important, but it's an actual thing. And I just mm. use kind of this, you know, non-sociological um, language here because it isn't just racism. It isn't just conservative politics. It isn't just authoritarianism, but that it is something different. Um, it's, it's its own thing. And so we're studying that. And then our final kind of main finding is that um, Christian nationalism does not necessarily equal um, being religious or, or being evangelical or, um, you know, being a faithful Christian. Um, because we find that those that reject Christian nationalism but maybe attend an evangelical Protestant church, they look completely different from fellow evangelicals who might embrace Christian nationalism really strongly. And so this is something that cuts across religious traditions. So if you're a white Catholic or a white mainline Protestant who embraces Christian nationalism, the likelihood that you really support the insurrectionists is, is equally high to white evangelicals, what we're finding. And so this is something that really operates across religious traditions. Um, and so those are some of the key kind of points we make in the book. Uh, but Sam's been collecting some amazing data lately. Um, and so, yeah, Sam, I'll, I'll let you share just a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, I, just to, just to finish off the discussion of the uh, of the book, though, I think the three uh, the the way the book progresses is we describe how really Christian nationalism worships at the Holy Trinity of power, boundaries, and order. Uh, that uh, it, it values three things primarily: uh, power and making sure that uh, our, our group uh, stays in power and is able to maintain that power. Uh, we demonstrate that in the book through its Christian nationalist support of Donald Trump and his policies and his brand of politics. And we've been able to demonstrate that in subsequent studies as well, uh, that Christian nationalism and especially white Christian nationalism is very concerned with maintaining proper boundaries between us and them. And that's really one of the things that Christian nationalism boils down to is marking off who is the us that has the rightful power in the United States and who is the them that we oppose and want to make sure that we mm. marginalize or oppress or drive out. Uh, and then the last one is order. Christian nationalism uh, at its core, longs to establish and reinforce a, a very particular traditionalist social order uh, 
in which everybody recognizes their proper place in the family, uh, in society, in the church. Uh, and so um, it manifests in a variety of ways, but really that's kind of the breakdown of the book is how Christian nationalism reinforces and worships at that, that holy trinity of power, boundaries, and order. It's a lot, isn't it? I mean, just that little bit is so dense, right? So much coming at you. Like it functions in the world. It's determinative about how people are going to view things. And it's power, boundaries, and order. If you think back to some of the things you've seen or as we go forward and what you're going to see on the screen, you might start to notice this power, boundaries, and order keep coming up. Our country and not theirs. Our rightful job to do this task and not someone else's. Who's going to be let in? Who's not? What's the government's role in the in the pandemic and other things. This becomes part of the talking points. Now, I want to be perfectly clear from my vantage point, at least. Not every Republican is a Christian nationalist. Of course not. There's Christian nationalists who are Democrats. This thing is not just in one party or the other. There are some parties supporting it more and some parties working against it more. That's clearly going on. Um, But it's not just so simple as simply to say, take political party and apply it to this. This is complicated. This kind of social organizing and social order and stuff and figuring out how we describe social context is tough. So we've looked at Christian nationalism from an analytical perspective, what it is, what it isn't, and how it operates in people's lives. Now we're going to shift gears and look at Christian nationalism through a theological lens. Brian Zond is a pastor and prolific author, including Postcards from Babylon, the Church in American Exile. Here he is describing Christian nationalism as primarily a theological problem. I think that there's not near enough attention given to the fact that this is a theological problem. There are other contributing factors, but I think for me, it was simply a theological failure that until you see the kingdom of Christ as it is, the seduction toward empire is going to be almost impossible to resist. Um, Maybe I'll just jump in because I'll try to unpack what I'm getting at here. Um, One of the things, and I'm just reflecting on what I've just heard from Amanda and others. Um, If a congregation perceives their pastor as just having been basically uh, right-leaning conservative, and now suddenly he's turned into a politically left-leaning progressive liberal. Well, all that is is just you know switching teams, and it makes people mad, and you don't get anywhere. Um, and that isn't what happened with me, by the way. What happened was I began to see the kingdom of Christ, and I became more. Jesus focused in my preaching. I think at the bottom of most all of this is this question. How does the kingdom of God come? Does it come by the cross or does it come by the sword? And can you conflate the two? But I'm going to say, no, you cannot conflate the two. So helpful. Now here's activist and author Shane Claiborne. He's written such books as Jesus for President and Irresistible Revolution. I think that the beginning of it is to identify this collusion of American, of the religion, the heretical religion of American nationalism with orthodox, authentic Christianity. And the fact is, you know, in Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen does it so well. She shows us that, I mean, the problem is not that, that 
Americans think John Wayne is the Messiah. It's that they wish the Messiah looked a little bit more like John yeah. Wayne than the historical Jesus. You know, we, we don't really want a cross. We've got a gun. And if Jesus had had a gun, he might not have gotten killed. I literally saw that on a bumper sticker with the flag, right? So I think that's where we've got to identify that the religion of American nationalism has its own theology, manifest destiny, the doctrine of discovery, right? Uh, the, the religion of America has its own liturgy, its own holidays, its high, high holy days, July 4th. It's got its own creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Uh, it's got its icons and symbols, the flag, you know, the national anthem is its worship song. And if you d disrespect it, uh, you're in trouble. So like, we've got to bounce all of that off of Jesus and off of, of, of the real gospel. And I think we literally have a choice, as Jesus said, uh, we can't serve two masters. We've got to we've got to decide who we will serve. Who will we serve? Because when we're serving Jesus, we're serving the oppressed, the marginalized, and oftentimes that puts us at odds with the America First brand of nationalism that demands we slam the door on our neighbor in the name of safety or fiscal responsibility. And this question isn't new. This theological problem of white Christian nationalism isn't new. Shane touched on this when he mentioned manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery. This goes way back. So to close out this episode, here's the Reverend Dr. Michael Waters on the white supremacist roots of Christian nationalism. Reverend Waters is the founder and lead pastor of the Abundant Life African Methodist Episcopal Church in Dallas, Texas. He's also a professor and award-winning author, an activist and social commentator. William Joseph Simmons a Methodist minister ascended Stone Mountain in Georgia with 15 other men. He built there an altar to his God and laid upon it a Bible, a sword, and an American flag. A cross was also set ablaze. Hence, the second rise of the Ku Klux Klan was born. Reflecting later on that day, Reverend Simmons, who declared himself imperial wizard or national leader said that the angels that have anxiously watched the reformation from its beginnings must have hovered about stone mountain and shouted hosannas to the highest heavens simmons led the clan for seven years during which time they experienced dramatic growth in number influence and power in addition to facilitating other acts of violence all across America, the Klan gained majority control over several state houses and made public witness of their increasing influence and power by marching through the streets of Washington, D.C. Therefore, what is currently transpiring in America is not the first time that white Christian nationalism has run rampant. Nor is it the first time that the God of white supremacy has been openly worshiped in both citadels of power as well as churches. Yet this truth does not diminish the clear and present dangers posed with this rise. You see, white supremacy comes with the body count. And when white Christian nationalism reigns, death runs rapid too. During the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of this year, 
Many insurrectionists came, as the Klan did years before, to D.C. in the name of their God. They openly carried crosses and Bibles. They gathered for prayer in the shadow of gallows, gallows erected to lynch elected officials if granted the chance. They circled for prayer on the Senate floor after assaulting and murdering a Capitol Police officer in route. They lauded their God for granting them the favor to, quote, send a message to all tyrants, the communists, and the globalists that this is our nation, not theirs. Friends, we know that these are consequential times. Today, in the name of the God of white supremacy, voting rights are being eroded all across America. Today, in the name of the God of white supremacy, our Asian American brothers and sisters are being assaulted and slaughtered in cold blood in America's streets. Although a new administration now occupies the White House, the God of white supremacy still reigns supreme in most state houses. Before we can effectively work to heal our divides in this nation, we must take full inventory of the roots from which they spring forth. In many ways, our divides are the results of idol worship. When the God of our allegiance is a manifestation of our unsubstantiated fears and selfish manipulations, we worship a God shaped and formed in our own interests, as opposed to the God who shaped and formed us as a reflection of God's self to care for the concerns of others. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes wrote, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Certainly white Christian nationalism is not new. Our nation is unfortunately well acquainted with this death dealing dynamics. But just as white Christian nationalism is not new, Neither is our opposition to it. I must admit to you, friends, this truth for me is a well of hope. We are gifted with a blueprint for transformative struggle. In multiple generations before us, we find persons who have combated such evils with courage and consistency, persons brave enough to bend the arc towards justice knowing that it does not just bend itself. Persons who bear witness to the light of God in the whole of humanity who boldly work against any force seeking to diminish its light. The late Coretta Scott King once said, struggle is a never-ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. Therefore, as in generations past, we must boldly, courageously, and consistently pick up the mantle of justice and advance the cause of freedom, 
We must advance the cause of freedom forward against what for us is a familiar foe. With faith in God and in community with each other, certainly in this generation, we will prevail. Thanks for listening to Confronting Christian Nationalism, a limited series brought to you by Vote Common Good. Whether it's cycling along the entire U.S.-Mexico border calling for immigration reform, traveling the country in a bright orange tour bus holding get-out-the-vote rallies, or training candidates to connect with evangelical and Catholic voters, Vote Common Good is mobilizing people of faith to make the common good their voting criteria. Head over to votecommongood.com to learn more and get involved. We'd also love to hear from you. What have you been learning through this podcast series? What surprised you? What are we missing? What do you hope we cover? Drop us a note at info at votecommongood.com. This series is produced by me, Daniel Dietrich, at Common Good Media, and our theme music is composed by Pendulum Fury. If this show has been helpful to you, share it with a friend, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, or consider funding our work at votecommongood.com. Thanks again for listening. And may your commitment to the common good drive you to confront Christian nationalism wherever it's found.